It's no light matter to stand in a pulpit and deliver a message knowing that the message must be truthful and solely based on the Word of God. So for one more week, we're going to be stepping away from the series that Pastor Steve has been taking us through, which is seeing and savoring Jesus. But my prayer today is as we go through different parts of Scripture, uh, that we will see Him the same way, perhaps not through the harmony of the Gospels as we've been going through, but perhaps we will gain another perspective or another picture of Jesus that we may not see too often as we read through the Word. And so perhaps we'll be able to savor Him today much the same as we've been able to going through uh, the harmony of the Gospels. So we're going to start in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, just by way of background, we're going to read a little bit uh, from the book of Daniel. Uh, I want to ask the kids real quick, does anyone know who Daniel is? Any of the children? Do any of you know who Daniel is? What's that? Daniel went in the lion's den. Have you, have you kids heard that before about Daniel? He went in the lion's den? What else do you know about him? Do you know what particular title he had? He was given a title by God. Do you know what his title was? Has anyone heard that he was a prophet? Do you know what a prophet is? Who, what's a prophet? Don't be shy. There's no wrong answers. The adults can feel free to chime in if you want to as well. That, that's okay if your kids are a little nervous. What is a prophet according to God's standard? He's a person that speaks. That's right. And he speaks the words of God. In fact, uh, do you know that according to the Bible that a prophet cannot tell a lie with regards to the words that he speaks about God? He always has to be truthful. And if he ever tells a lie about something regarding God, then he's not a prophet anymore. He cannot be considered a prophet by God because he is no longer speaking the words that God has commissioned him or commanded him to speak. Um, Daniel, just uh, again, a little bit of background, he was exiled from Judah to uh, Babylon around 605 B.C. Uh, he was a, uh, his name, by the way, means God is my judge, which is interesting because when you consider the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, it is probably the Old Testament equivalent to the book of Revelation in the New Testament, which is a book that's filled with prophecies. So fittingly, Daniel's name means God is my judge. Nine of the 12 chapters of the book of Daniel deal specifically with visions or dreams that God gave him about events that were taking place during his time, during that period, were about to take place, or things that were going to happen in the future. And, uh, of course, when he was exiled to Babylon, uh, many things happened to him during that time. And as one mentioned, yes, he survived a trial in the lion's den. He was thrown into the lion's den because he was basically accused by uh, some of the men in the king's court of actually worshiping the God of Israel. And so he was thrown into the lion's den, but uh, Darius, who was the king, was grieved about it and prayed about that. And the next day, he was delivered out of the lion's den unharmed. And so that's a little background on him. Um, whenever I share the gospel with someone, one of the core issues that I try to help the person understand is how God sees that person in truth. And uh, I try to articulate a clear picture of a just and a holy God. And at the same time, I want them to see this picture of a God who is also in the business of justifying people. In other words, he makes right the wrongs that are in people's life. So he's a just God, but he's also a God who justifies people. And today, we're going to look at, perhaps in a couple different places of Scripture, what that looks like according to the Word of God. 
Um, we're going to see a picture in the Old Testament and in the New Testament of this just God and this, and this justifying God. And perhaps maybe the picture that you have of how God is just or how he might be wrathful or how he might be angry or, or these types of things, maybe it's a little fuzzy to you. Maybe it's like you know, putting on a pair of glasses that are all smudged up with thumbprints. And although you can see the things that you're looking at, certainly cleaning it up a little will help it be a little bit more clear to you. Or maybe if you're driving down the road and, like me, you put the windshield wipers on when there's stuff on the windshield, but there's no water in your reservoir, and the windshield just becomes all streaky, and it makes it a challenge to, to be able to see the road. Well, you know, God spoke some interesting and very powerful words to Daniel, and, to, and oftentimes, Daniel did not clearly understand the things that God was speaking to him because they were of, uh, of, the, of a future event that would take place or future events that would take place. So perhaps you could say that Daniel saw dimly what God has already now shown us clearly what will take place in his word. So we're going to look at that today. Although God has given Daniel many visions for the purpose of our message today, we're going to look at two particular visions regarding two distinct attributes of God, God the just and God the justifier. And I find it fitting this past week, for those of you who are involved in our small groups, uh, our chapter that we read this past week was, What is God Like? And we went through a, a, a whole chapter of many pages of all these different attributes of God. And so I find it fitting that today we can open God's Word and we can look at these two particular attributes which cover two ends of the spectrum of the same God. So uh, we're going to look at Daniel chapter 7. We'll be looking at verses 9 and 10. That'll be our launching point for this morning. So if you could, please, would you stand? And we're going to read the Word of God together. And the Word of God says, verse 9, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire, a stream issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Let us pray. Lord, we're so thankful for the opportunity, Lord, to to be able to stand here and open your word, Father, and discern spiritually, Lord, what you have prepared for us to hear. Lord God, I I tremble at the opportunity to be able to share your word because it is such a high honor to be able to deliver a word that has a profound effect on your people. And so, Lord, I just ask today, Lord, as we go through these chapters, Father, I pray that your spirit would be working, Father, through me in the midst of your people. I pray that it is not my voice or my speech that is heard, Father, but that it is your word that is spoken to the hearts of your people. And those who are not, Lord, I pray that it would penetrate, Lord, the heart of stone, And it would take that heart and turn it into a heart of flesh. May you be exalted today, Father. May the glory be for you and for you alone. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, There is no outline, uh, but if you have a a bulletin, feel free to take notes uh, today. We'll be be going through a few different passages in Scripture. And uh, so feel free, I'll, I'll try to kind of go slow in some parts if you want to write something down. The title of my sermon today is called Extraordinary Things. Uh, the reason why I titled this is because we're going to see an extraordinary, extraordinary display of the justice of God, as I mentioned, and an extraordinary display of God's work of redemption. So the title is Extraordinary Things. And 
first thing I want to look at today, we're going to, as I said, we'll be flipping through the, the Bible a little bit. Um, but the first point I want us to see today is we're going to look at God the just. So we're going to spend some, spend some time here looking at God the just. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.10 that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for the things that we've done in the body, whether good or evil. And although this judgment seat for believers is a bit different than the judgment that unredeemed man will stand before, it's important that we understand what these passages that we're going to look at mean and what their implications are for our lives because not only will it impact the way we live as believers, but it should impact the way that we live in regards to people who we know that are unbelievers. So let us look. The first uh, text that we see here picks up in the middle of of a a vision that Daniel is receiving from God. In in, in the same chapter in verse 1, it says that he saw this vision during the first year of Belshazzar. This was around 553, 552 B.C. And part of the vision that Daniel is seeing has to do with what it says, uh, four great beasts, which represent kings or kingdoms. That's not our focus, but I just want you to, in context to see that he's receiving uh, a larger vision here, but we're focusing on two particular elements of this vision uh, that he's getting. So God then shows Daniel a picture of a heavenly throne. This heavenly throne is described in great detail in the book of Revelation, chapters 4 and 5. And what Daniel sees, however, is a time when not only Satan is finally defeated, but when the unredeemed would stand before God in what the Bible calls the great white throne judgment. This is a courtroom type setting, if you will. He first sees here in verse 9, if you look, that thrones were placed. Revelation chapter 4, verse 4 says that around God's thrones are 24 thrones. Some believe that this, these 24 thrones that are sitting around that could perhaps be the 12 being the 12 tribes of Israel representing the Old Testament and the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ representing the New Testament church, thus a picture of unity, so to speak, that's around God's throne. It's the entire church of God unified that sits around the throne of God. And so that's the picture that, that we're seeing here. Um, Revelation 20, verse 4 says that those seated around the thrones were given authority to judge. The focus here, however, is the throne that's mentioned. As I look, thrones were placed, and who is seated on the throne? And the Bible calls this one the Ancient of Days. Now, the Ancient of Days is a title that can be described as everlasting God. It can mean one who rules over time. Perhaps you've heard this in songs that we've sung, or you've read it in Scripture before, the Ancient of Days but it has a particular uh, focus on one who has age or antiquity, dignity, endurance, judgment, and wisdom. And it's clear from Scripture as you read this that this refers to God Himself, the God of Israel. In verses 9 and 10, we're going to look here at some of the attributes that describe this Ancient of Days and His surroundings. So it says first there in verse 9, His clothing was white as snow. This is a picture of purity, and it means that the one who is, who's, who is, is, uh, whose clothing is white as snow is pure, and he is holy, and he will always do what is right. When you see this in Scripture, when you see the white as, as an adjective to describe something, this color, it's always a picture of purity. And so here we see the Ancient of Days who is clothed as white as snow. So the picture is purity, which means he will always do what is right. Secondly, it says that the hair of his head like pure wool. This is a picture of wisdom. He will always sort out 
right from wrong. This one who has taken his seat on the throne will always be wise to separate good from evil properly. There will never be a misunderstanding or a mischaracterization of how God deals with justice. He will always sort out things perfectly right and wrong. This is wisdom. The third thing that you see is his throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. Now, this is a a specific reference to a vision that Ezekiel had in Ezekiel chapter 1. And what this is, you can look at that later in great detail, but basically it represents his power to destroy his enemies. This is his throne, fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. So it, it represents God's power to destroy his enemies, meaning his justice will be done. In verse 10, it says, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. And this represents an image of the means by which God will destroy his enemy, or his enemies, I should say. The Bible uses very vivid pictures to describe the works of the unredeemed when they stand before God, and we'll see this later, but specifically, the, the, the idea or the picture of a flame being used means that each one's works who are unredeemed will burn up like wheat or like hay. So it's, it's like a fire goes out and it destroys all those things that will, that will not last. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. This is an innumerable number representing all of the people. Now, some people have, have sort of debated back and forth whether the redeemed, as I mentioned earlier, 2 Corinthians 5, where it says that all of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, Paul is speaking to the redeemed. He's speaking to the church. And it says we will appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for the things that we've done in the body, whether good or evil. But see, for us as Christians, this is not a, a judgment for the sin that we have committed because for the Christian, that judgment was applied to Christ on the cross. So there's no payment for sin for the believer in this case, but this is a picture of the unredeemed who will be standing there before the throne. But some people believe that the redeemed, the Christians, will actually be there to witness this that takes place, this event that takes place, okay? So uh, then it says that the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. Court is in session, but what are these books? The Bible says the books were opened. What is going on in heaven that requires the unredeemed to be present? Why is mankind there? And we'll see that what Daniel saw dimly, God shows us clearly in his word what is taking place. You can bookmark this. Go to Revelation chapter 20 if you would, please. And if you want, like I said, leave a mark here. We're going to come back to Daniel 7, but turn over to Revelation chapter 20. And we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 15. And as we go through this, I want you to consider what we just read and what you've just heard about this picture that God has, has put on display for Daniel to see and see if you can pick out anything specifically related to this vision that God gave Daniel. Verse 11, Revelation chapter 20 says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. 
And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So in this text, what we see here is we see mankind being judged according to the, to the Scripture, by one of two means. One, whether the, by their deeds that are recorded in these books. We see the books. And two, whether their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So there's, there's a set of books, and then there's a book. And these books are the deeds of mankind. Verse 11 says that the place that the Ancient of Days took his, t- takes his seat is on a great white throne. You see that? So we see there very clearly... I saw a great white throne in him who was seated on it. And this harkens right back to what we saw in Daniel about this man whose clothing was, was as white as snow. And what do we notice in particular about the throne itself? It is white. Again, this picture that where the Ancient of Days is sitting is also a place of holiness. Okay? It is a place of purity. Now this is why that the, the events that are about to take place here are called the great white throne judgment. Okay? God himself has taken his seat on this great white throne and these books are opened and mankind is about to be judged. This is where we get the name the great white throne judgment. Now we also see here in, uh, in uh, verse 11 that the presence of earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. This is the removal of the world as we know it. There's a time when God comes and he brings all things to consummation, he brings all things to the end, and the earth, as we know it, is no longer. All right? So this is, this is what's going on. Every place that people would, would try to hide or any place where people would think that they could escape from the judgment of God, this is a time where all of that is gone and everything is exposed so that God sees it all and they are all before him. Verses 12 and 13 again say, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. What are these books? The deeds of mankind. The books, plural, are the deeds of men. All men. Okay? And all deeds, by the way. Jesus said so much that every careless word that a man speaks, he will give an account thereof on the day of judgment. So very often we think so much about crimes that are committed by certain people, thieves or robbers or murderers or things like that, and we say, you know, God is going to judge that person for what they have done. But Jesus said in Matthew twelve thirty six, every careless word a man speaks, he will give an account thereof on the day of judgment. So it's not just the things that we do, but it's the things that we think and the things that we say and the things that we utter when we think no one hears us. These are things that are written in these books. And the book, singular again, is the book of life. What does it contain? It contains the name, the names of God's people, the redeemed. That's what's there. And these names, the Bible says, were written in this book before the foundation of the world. So we see a time where from eternity past, this book had names inscribed to it. And all, all those whom God would redeem to himself. And now at the consummation, at the end of all things, when the books of deeds are opened, now we see this book of life appear again. And it's opened again. And what's in there are the names of the people who have been redeemed by God. The deeds, by the way, that are recorded in the books for the redeemed. You see, because even though there's separate books and there's this book of life, 
your deeds are still written in that book. And see, the deeds that are written on that, in that book testify to the validity of your conversion in Christ. They don't get you right with God. They don't convert you to Christ. They don't save you. But when God saves you, you will do deeds that are in accordance and validate the fact that your conversion was legitimate, that it was real, that it was true. So you have deeds that are written in that book as well. And those deeds that are written in that book, when they line up with your name, they will validate whether you are actually a Christian or not. They're evidence that you are indeed saved. And the deeds that are recorded of the unredeemed, like I mentioned earlier, will burn up like hay and straw. In fact, Isaiah 64, 6 says that all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment before the Lord. So people who will come before the throne when they take their last breath and try to offer something to God in exchange for their soul, God sees those things as polluted garments. The language is actually more disgusting than that, but for the sake of our audience, I will not be say much more what it is, but just, just say it's dirty. And that's how God sees us trying to bring works to bribe, our, to bribe Him to allow us entrance into heaven. Romans 2 Verses 6 through 11 says that he will render each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good the Jew first, and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. So what is it that man does to create this situation? What is it that people do that renders them guilty before God and deserving of punishment? Why is this event even taking place at some point in history? Why are these books open? Why is everyone watching with anticipation what is going to take place and what the Bible says very clearly about this judgment? Why is it even happening? Well, the Bible says that we've broken an uncompromising law is what it is. God has given everyone a standard by which we're supposed to live by. That standard is the Ten Commandments. I know many of you as parents have perhaps studied these with your children and taught them to memorize them and things like that. And and I think many people think of the Ten Commandments as just a list of do's and don'ts as a way that God decided that he was just going to kind of make people be weighed down by this law and of these do's and don'ts and he just wants to oppress people. But the fact is, is that actually God gave us his law. He gave us his commandments for our good and not for our hurt. He gave them to us as a warning and as a promise so that those who live by them will have life. But this law is unbreaking. You look at the Ten Commandments, the Bible says that when we take our last breath and we stand before our Creator, the Bible says in Hebrews 9.27 that that it's appointed for a man to die once and then comes judgment. So the Bible speaks very clearly that when we take our last breath, we will stand before the God who gave us life. And He will hold up His law. He will hold up His standard to us like a mirror. And it will shine back on us and show us who we are in truth. As I mentioned at the beginning, this is something I try when I speak to people very often. I want them to understand so clearly is how God sees them in truth. Because this is the standard that God will judge them by. His truth 
is perfection. His standard is perfection. So when God's law is held up to us, we look at it and it reflects back on us and shows us who we are in truth. The ninth commandment, for example, says, you shall not lie, you shall not bear false witness. So when that shines on you, it's asking you the question, how many times have I lied in my life? How many times have I told a white lie or just stretched the truth a little? It can't be a big deal if I was doing it to protect somebody, right? But you see, God's Word says that lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. And that all liars, as we read in Revelation here, chapter 20, will have their part in the lake of fire. That's how big one lie is to God. Or stealing. The Eighth Commandment says you shall not steal, right? Maybe you took something as a young child from a candy store and stuck a piece of gum in your pocket. No big deal. Or maybe you've committed a great theft. Or maybe you download music off the internet and don't pay for it. Maybe you're getting paid to work and you're not working. The clock's running, but you know that you're just killing time. That's theft. And God says in His Word that no thief will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Look at the law and let the law put its weight on you so that you see how God sees you in truth. And this will give you a good understanding of why this event is taking place here. In Proverbs uh, chapter 20, verse 6, it says that many a man proclaims his own steadfast love or goodness, but a faithful man who can find. You see, if you ask most people in the world, do you consider yourself to be a good person? Most people will say, yeah, I'm a good person. Because their standard, and maybe for some of us, our standard is a horizontal thing. How do we treat other people? How do we treat our coworkers? How do we treat the government with regards to our income tax? How do we treat the laws that are on the road? We obey street signs. You see, I'm a morally good guy. I pay my taxes. You know, I don't lie to people. I do my work. And that's the standard of goodness that the Bible says man will proclaim, which is understandable. And if that's you, I commend you for having a good moral standard like that. But you see, the standard that God says that he will judge people by is not horizontal, but it's vertical. The issue is not primarily how we treat each other. The issue is how do we treat God? That's the standard. That's why Proverbs says that man will proclaim his own goodness because they think the comparison is them and other people, not them and God. But Romans 3, chapter 10, verses 18 says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. None, no one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is why man continuously lives in rebellion to God and why this event must take place in the future because there is no fear of God before him. In their eyes, they do not fear this God. They have taken the things of this world and, draw, and consumed them amongst themselves, the vain things of this world, the things that we think give us life but only lead to death. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You know, when you read the story in Luke 
chapter 16 about the, the rich ruler and Lazarus. And you see that they, you know, Lazarus just, he just took the crumbs every day from the, from the master's table. And when they died, you see the rich man who's in torment, and you see Lazarus at Abraham's side. And many people would say, if you read the passage, it would be easier to look at it and say, well, well, this guy was rich, so that's why he went to hell, and this poor guy was poor and had a rough life, and that's why he went to heaven. But that's not what the Scripture says. Although it reads that way, in a greater context, what the Scripture is telling us is that this rich man lived sumptuously. You see, everything that he had was his God. He didn't need anything else. He forsook the God who gave him life for all the pleasures of this world. The Bible calls them the pleasures of sin for a season. And when he died, he had received his reward already. So when he died and opened his eyes, he was in torment. And yet this beggar, Lazarus, is a picture of a man who forsakes the desires that this world is enticing you with. Satan has hung out the golden carrot for mankind to reach after and chase, but will never catch. Because as soon as you think you grabbed hold of it, there will be one more thing to chase. And there will be one more thing to chase. And your satisfaction will be in trying to chase the things of this world. All the while you see Lazarus, a man who was satisfied just eating crumbs that fell from the master's table. He didn't have a desire for riches or for prestige or for honor or for nobility or for recognition or a pat on the back. All he wanted was just whatever the Lord will give me. You see, and we live in a world and a culture that says, I want. And instead we should be saying, what does God want? So am I a good person? Are you a good person? Are you good enough to go to heaven? Do you, when you think of the conversations that you have with family members who are lost or friends or coworkers or students that are lost, ask them that question. Are you a good person? Do you think you're good enough to go to heaven? And they say, well, yeah. Why? By what standard are you basing your salvation on? What is the standard that you will stand before God and say, this is why I deserve to come into heaven? What will you say? You see, this is why God is just. It's right that a good judge would see that the law is upheld. Otherwise, he'd be a corrupt judge. You know, I've heard it said that people want justice. You know, I have people come up to me all the time and, 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 and wherever, particularly in Athens, and they'll say, why doesn't God deal with all the evil in the world? And the question I ask then is, well, where do you want him to start? Should he start with you? You see, because we want justice for all the ills in the world until it hits our front door. And then we want to go somewhere else. Well, you see, God, the thing is, that guy's a lot worse than I am. But you know what? We're as guilty. Maybe to a different degree, but we are as guilty. This is why it's right for God to be just. This is why it is right to believe in a God and to love a God whose character is unchanging in his justness, who will not waver and cannot be bribed. If you were committed of a crime and you had to go to court and you're there and you know you're not guilty, but somehow or another the one who's accusing you was able to buy off the judge, I think when the evidence starts to stack against you, even though you know you're innocent, 
you really want a good judge on the bench, do you not? Or maybe a crime was committed against you. And you know that that man who's sitting there next to the defense attorney has come up with a very creative argument that might let this man go, but you know there was a smoking gun and that man is guilty. Do you want a judge who can be bought off and grant that man innocence, or do you want a just judge in that case? See, we as Christians, we want a just judge. If you believe that your sins have been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, then you want a good judge. You want a God who remembers that your sins were applied to Christ. You don't want a God who forgets that, or a God who can be bribed by Satan into saying, no, 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 that, he wasn't one of them. Oh, really? You want a God that, that you can be sure of that justice will be carried out against those who hate his name, against those who act out against his people. So, you see, we see this perfect, this righteous, and this holy God who cannot and will not allow sin into heaven. And yet the interesting thing is, is that he allows sinners into heaven. How can this be? This God that we've just painted this picture of, this just and holy and uncompromising God, who the Bible says will by no means clear the guilty, he clears guilty people and lets them into heaven. How is this possible? Are we talking about two different gods? Anyone who studied this week with us, what is God like? We know that God's attributes are not imbalanced. Is that correct? They are in perfect balance. The holiness of God and the justice of God and the wrath of God is equal to the love of God, the mercy of God, and the grace of God. Right? If you put too much weight on the love of God, you'll never understand His justice. If all you think about is an angry God who's sitting waiting to put people in hell, you'll never appreciate the love that he put on display at the cross, right? But how is this possible? It's not a, it's not a different God. It's not a God who says, you know, split personality, God of judgment, go over there and just take it easy and mess those people up, and when you're done, I'll take over and I'll go love these people. This is the same God we're talking about. So how does a God of justice justify people? Well, the second point is that God is the justifier of his people. We're going to look back here at Daniel chapter 7. So go ahead and flip back there if you would. How can this holy God let sinners like you and I dwell eternally in his presence? The second part of the vision that God gave Daniel that I want us to see relates to the means by which he reconciles his people to himself. Again, this is perhaps something Daniel did not understand very clearly, um, but God has shown this to us. He gives Daniel a picture of redemption, a picture beyond just the people of Israel's deliverance from Babylonian capture, but rather a time of the redemption of God's people from spiritual slavery, their bondage to sin. See, the time that Daniel is in is a time when God's people have been exiled, as I mentioned earlier. They're in captivity. They're held in a place where they are not free to go as they wish. So Daniel sees this vision that God gives him and says, oh, he's going to talk about how he's going to get us out of here. And I'll share this with the people and the people will rejoice. Yes, that's true. That's part of the story. But there's a bigger picture here that he wants us to see. And the bigger picture here is redemption for all of his people. 
not just from Babylonian exile, but from our prison, from the slavery that we're in bondage to, to sin. We're held captive to it by the world system. That's what unbelievers are. The Bible says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. So unbelievers are blind, held captive to their sin. So this is a picture that is bigger than just the Babylonian exile. It is a picture of God's redemption of His people. Look at verses 13 now and 14. We'll read that together. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. You see here in verse 13, it says, we see this, first of all, we see that with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. You remember our song that we sang, our first song this morning? Behold, he comes, how? Riding on the clouds, right? Who gets that ride? Not just anyone. I don't see really in Scripture where we get to ride on the clouds. There's a picture where we're taken up in the clouds, but we don't get to ride on the clouds. This is, on the clouds. This is a, a special designation. And it says that the title of this person who was presented is Son of Man. Now, just some background on this. Uh, it's a title used by many, many times in the Old and the New Testaments, and it can refer to just a human being, or it can refer to Jesus himself. It is used over a hundred times in the Old Testament, and in the ESV, it's mentioned 93 times as a title that God has given to Ezekiel, Son of Man, 93 times in the book of Ezekiel alone. It's used over 80 times in the New Testament, and apart from perhaps five or so occurrences, every single other time that it's used is Jesus referring to himself, Son of Man. Okay? So we have two distinct possibilities here. Ordinary man, Jesus himself. Okay? Who is the Son of Man in our text that was presented before the Ancient of Days? Verse 14 helps us to understand this. To him... This is the Son of Man. To Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. This is a kingdom equal to God's kingdom. How do we know? Isaiah 48, 11 says this, God will not share His glory with another. That's the key to who this man is. God will not share His glory with another. And yet the one who, he, who is given dominion, He's also given what? It says, He's given glory. God will not share his glory with another, but he's sharing glory with someone here. He is sharing glory and he's giving a dominion, dominion and a kingdom. All peoples, it says, and nations and languages should, and look at these key words here, should serve him. Then it says his dominion is an everlasting dominion. Remember the title that we gave that the Bible gives to Ancient of Days, that I said is a possible meaning of the name Ancient of Days, what did I say? Everlasting God. We know God, by Scripture's account, has always existed. There is never a consideration that there wasn't a time when God existed. And this Son of Man is given an everlasting dominion. The dominion, the rule that He will have, 
will never end, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This harkens to a, some words that Jesus gave to Peter and the, and the disciples when he was on the earth. And he said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is a kingdom that shall not be destroyed, no matter what comes up against it. So clearly, this is no ordinary man that this passage is referring to here. But what does this Son of Man, mentioned here in Daniel chapter 7, have to do with God being a justifier? What does He have to do with the enmity or the hostility between God and man? You see, unredeemed people carry this tremendous weight of sin that has not been dealt with. And the Bible says very clearly that between God and man, there is a wall of hostility that stands between them. It cannot be breached. God is on one side of this wall, and mankind is on the other. What stands between us and God outside of Christ? Hostility, war, enmity, hatred, idolatry, rebellion, coveting, blasphemy. That stands between us in an unredeemed state and God, pure, white, holy, righteous. A wall of hostility that cannot be broken down. That's what stands there. If you would, go ahead and turn over to Luke chapter 5. You can leave Daniel now. We're done there. I wanted to set this up. As we talk about this Son of Man, again, this picture that Daniel sees from God Blurry, perhaps, and not very clear, not very understandable, but he recognizes that this man is not an ordinary man. The language is too clear that this man has something to do with the kingdom of God, with how God deals with people. Luke chapter 5, verse 17 is where we're going to pick this up. And it says... On one of those days, as he was teaching, this is Jesus, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, They went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts, which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Extraordinary things. Now the first thing I want us to see here in verse 20 is that Jesus makes a profound 
statement. He makes a profound statement. What does he say? Man, your sins are forgiven. And by the way, there was no small crowd here to witness this. You look in the text there in verse 17, it says, uh, teach Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. Well, we know also there was a lot of people there because there was no way to get this man in the house other than by through the roof. So there was a lot of people there, and they're hanging on everything that Jesus is doing. For the ones who are being drawn by God himself, they are waiting in amazement to see what's next. But for the hypocrites and the pretenders and those who just love to snarl at everything he does, they're waiting to catch him in something. But the first statement he says here in verse 20 is profound. It says, your sins are forgiven. You see, in the Old Testament, if Jesus were just a prophet, he might have just said, the Lord has put your sin away. This is how the prophets spoke. Because they had no authority to forgive sins on their own. Right? They had no ability to come because they were not divine in any way. They had not the power to speak forgiveness into someone's life. So Jesus if they hold him as a prophet, it's easy for him to just say, your sins have been put away by the Lord. The Lord has put your sins away. But what does he say? Your sins are forgiven. Is this a big deal? He claims to do what only God can do. This is a big deal. This is especially a big deal to the religious leaders. In verse 22, the second thing I want you to see is that he perceives their thoughts. So, First, he makes this profound, profound statement, your sins are forgiven. Second, in verse 22, he perceives their thoughts. Other translations may say he was aware of their reasoning. But notice that it does not say he heard their words. This is no ordinary man. They did not utter a word within his hearing, but he perceived their thoughts. He reasoned. Or he understood their reasoning. And third, in verses 23 through 25, I want you to see where he proves his deity. He proves his deity. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. Why is this such a big deal? Was the healing the proving of his deity? Perhaps in some way. But what's bigger here? What does Jesus say? What is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise up, walk, and go home? What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven. Why? Because if they're not, who knows that? Nobody, right? Steve, your sins are forgiven. I could say that easily. But whether they are or not, by my words, prove nothing. I could walk away and be called a hero or a zero for what I just said. What's the big issue here? Which is easier to say? But that you know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he turns to the man who is paralyzed and said, rise up and walk. 
Rise up and walk. See, the men heard Jesus' words. And what did they say? He's blaspheming. He's making himself out to be God. So if they're not going to believe what he's saying about your sins are forgiven, okay, to show you that I have the power on earth to forgive sins, rise up and walk. Now they're forced to reconsider. Is this son of man the one who we've read about in the law in the Old Testament? Is this the one that Ezekiel referred to himself as all the time? Is he just some ordinary man? Or is this the son of man that Daniel 7 mentions who was ushered in on the clouds and is given an eternal, everlasting dominion. Who is this man? Who is this man? Who is this son of man? You see, the evidence is there. They may have not seen whether he forgave the man's sins or not, but what they did see is that man rose up and walked home. And if Jesus can do this, I wonder if he can do this. Who is this son of man? Who has the power to forgive sin? Jesus. What does he call himself? Son of man. His favorite title to refer to himself in Scripture. Favorite by number. Who therefore is the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7? Jesus. Why is this important? Because he is the one who has the power over sin and death. What is sin and death? Sin and death is our dilemma. The soul that sins will die. That's our dilemma. And there's a man who has the power over sin and death. This is God's means to justify His people, to reconcile them to Himself, to tear down the wall of hostility that stands between God and man. Look at verse 26. It says, when the people saw what happened, amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Your translation may say remarkable things. I think even in the New King James, it says, we have seen strange things today. Strange as in inexplicable. Not like this guy's a weirdo. But how do, you, how do you explain this? This is an extraordinary thing that we've seen today. You see, to understand the gospel, to understand the good news, that's what gospel means. It's good news. I tell this to people all the time when I preach the gospel in Athens. I say, the only way that you understand the good news is if you understand the bad news first. That's the only way that good news is good news right? Your child doesn't know what hot means until they put their hand on that burner and they experience it for themselves, right? What good is a parachute if you have to jump out of a plane and you look at it and you go, you know, if I have to jump out of a plane, that parachute will save me, and then you jump out of the plane. How useful was the parachute? But when you look at the parachute and you say, that is my only means for survival, and you put it on and jump out of the plane and use it the way the manual says to use it, you live. How useful is Jesus if you just look at him and go, yep, he could save me from my sins. And then you just go on life, living the way you want to live. The Bible says we put him on. 
and we embrace him and we hold on to him tight even when the flight is bumpy, even when there's turbulence, even when we lose a loved one, even when life at home is not what we say it's supposed to be. The Bible says that those who desire to live a godly life will face trials. And if they haven't happened to you yet, and you're desiring a godly life, they will happen to you. Otherwise, God is a liar. So we cling to Him. We cling to Him tightly. So I've shared with you the bad news. I'm sorry I probably spent the first half of our time here putting a damper on your Sunday morning, but the gospel is good news. And the only way that you're going to take this good news and you're going to say, that's the good news I've been waiting for. That's what I need to hear from me. That's what I need my relative to hear or my cousin or brother or sister or mother or coworker or student or whoever it may be. This is what they need to hear. And then you help them understand, look, there's peril that waits for you. The Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It should fear those outside of Christ to die without him. But you see, 2,000 years ago, God came to this earth in the form of a man, Jesus Christ. Isaiah prophesied and said that they would call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God took on human flesh and says he tabernacled, he dwelt among us. And he lived a perfect life, unlike the life that we live Tempted, the Bible says, in all ways that we are, and yet without sin. In fact, the Bible says that he is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Listen, a man could not die for the sins of people that he could not relate to. And the only way he relates to his people is by enduring many of the same things that we endure, yet not succumbing to them. Tempted like we are, yet without sin. 30, 33 years into his existence, he went to the cross and he was hung there and he was crucified. And you know, for all the torture and the pain that the Bible describes about this whole process from his arrest and the flogging that he endured, the beating that ripped flesh off his body, the crown of thorns, the carrying of the cross, the nails in his hands and his feet, and that wood full of splinters just rubbing up and down his back and suffocating while he was hanging there, losing breath. For all that, that's not the worst thing that was going on that day. The worst thing that was going on that day was the wrath of God was being poured out on him. Yes, the physical pain was tough. But what was going on in heaven was tougher. God's own son was hanging on that cross and God's full wrath was being poured out on him in full measure. See, from eternity past, that transaction was put in place. That there would be a day that God would come to earth and he would reconcile people to himself. That day would come. And when that agreement was made, it was understood that God's full wrath and his fury would not be limited in how it was poured out. And Jesus understood that as the recipient of that, he would have to take all of it and could not stop at some point and say, enough, 
but that he would endure the entire wrath of God being poured out on him. Why is that good news? It's the gospel, right? Does that sound like the gospel to you? Why is that good news then? It's good news because it should have been us hanging on that cross. You see, God's wrath was locked on to us if you're a believer. It was aimed right at you, ready at any moment to be poured out in full measure on you, on me, for our crimes against God. It's treason. He's the king, and we've committed crimes against the king. And the Bible says that Jesus was the propitiation for the sins of his people. You know what that means? That means that the laser is on us, and Jesus steps in, and he absorbs it all. And the wrath that God was set to pour out on you and I was poured out in full measure on his son, and God was satisfied with that. You see, because when he died, the Bible tells us that three days later, he rose from the dead. The tomb was empty. Not, you know, we don't just have the Bible to tell us this. There's other historical documents that help us understand that that tomb was empty three days later. That's why we call it Resurrection Day. Because a resurrection took place. The tomb is empty. And the proof that God was satisfied with the complete payment that Jesus made for the sins of his people, the proof is the empty tomb. If God is not satisfied in the least bit way, if there's one drop of sin that Jesus did not pay for, he's still in that tomb today. Dry bones. But the tomb is empty. God was pleased with the sacrifice and the payment that his son made. And the Bible goes on to say that he walked the earth after that for 40 days and he appeared to over 500 witnesses who testified that he was risen. And then he was taken up into heaven. And he sits at the right hand of God now, waiting for a time of the Father's choosing to return. And in Hebrews 9.28, it says that when he returns, he will not return to deal with sin anymore, but he will return to receive those or to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. You see, he came to deal with the sin issue. If you, if you can't take the cross and all that happened on the cross and say, that is sufficient for my salvation, there's nothing else to be had for you. Remember the rich man and Lazarus? The rich man says to Abraham, tell him to go to my brothers so that they will not come to this place of torment. The rich man became an evangelist in hell. And Abraham said, They have Moses, and they have the prophets. He says, why would they believe if someone came from the dead? You know, everything that the Bible speaks about speaks about the coming of the Savior. Israel waited in anticipation for the one who would redeem them, but their focus was wrong. They thought this was all about like Roman oppression and we're going to be a free nation and all this. And the Redeemer was coming to redeem people from their slavery to sin. Just like this man was paralyzed physically, we are paralyzed by sin. And that's why Jesus came, to heal sinners. They have Moses and the prophets. No, no, let someone from the dead go. No, if they won't believe Moses... 
and the prophets. Neither will they believe if someone rises from the dead. Why do people not believe today? Everything points to Jesus. The whole Bible testifies that he would come. The law and the prophets spoke that it would be him, and he comes, and he fulfills everything that the Bible says about him, right down to the smallest details, so that you know that the Son of Earth, Son of Man, has power on earth to forgive sins. No, we don't, we don't believe him. He rose from the dead. We don't believe him. Romans 3, 21 through 26 says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance, He passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in him. Is this a different God that we've been speaking about? God the just and God the justifier? No, Romans says that he might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in him. God will see that sin is dealt with, but God will also see that his people are redeemed. He will not miss that. He'll not go absent when someone was supposed to get saved and he just wasn't there for that moment. His people will be redeemed and the unredeemed will be judged. Are you eagerly awaiting him? Like Hebrews 9.28 says, he'll return not to deal with sin, but to those who are eagerly awaiting him. Does that describe you? Are you eagerly awaiting the return of Jesus Christ whenever God chooses to do so. You know, the Bible uses language sometimes that we miss when we read it in English. And when you look at words like this or phrases like this, and you see where the Bible says, He's going to come and save those who are eagerly waiting for Him, this is not passive. This is not a bunch of people sitting in a room like this going, This is what he's waiting to come get. Me at church Sunday. Wait do you see how much money I put in there. That's not who he's he's going to come get. He's coming to get those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is something that is taking place in your life every single day. How are you eagerly awaiting him? Jesus said you're either gathering for me or you're scattering. How are we waiting for him? And is it eager? Someone once said... If Jesus returned at midnight, where would you be at 12.01 a.m.? It's a good question that we should ask ourselves, right? I mean, I'm not challenging anyone's salvation. I'm not questioning anyone in this room. But if this is hitting you, if it's pricking your heart, don't ignore this. And if it is challenging you to stand up and take this gospel to someone who will suffer for eternity apart from Christ, then do so. Do not let this fall on deaf ears and walk away and go, man, I cannot wait till I get those stuffed shells that Peter's wife made. Shameless plug. 
If your sin debt has not been applied to Christ, you must repent, the Bible says. Turn from your sins. Confess your sins to God. Forsake them. And trust Christ alone as the Savior of your soul. This is an extraordinary God, folks. This is an extraordinary God who does extraordinary things. He makes extraordinary promises. He also gives us extraordinary warnings, does he not? The Christian life is not passive. As Steve's dad preached last week, you know, go and make disciples. The emphasis is not on the go. Because it's, it's, it, the language says, as you're going or as you go. The presumption is already there that as a Christian, you are about going already. That's not something that has to be stirred up and taught. Am I supposed to go? Can we take a class on going? The going is God saves you and he plucks you out of the world system and he plants you into his kingdom, sets you apart immediately and begins, as Steve mentioned in Bible study, this sanctifying work in your life where he grows you out of the mundane things of this world. You can't help but be changed by being born again. That's a radical event that takes place. Born again is not like, you know, I had a bad dream last night and that's gone today. Born again is something that changes you forever. So the going is already a given. You are going. Are you making disciples? That's the, fe- that's the emphasis there. The emphasis of the Great Commission is not to go. We're going to go. We're Christians. We're going to go, right? The emphasis is make disciples. Make disciples because people need to hear about this extraordinary God that His people serve. This extraordinary Son of Man who came to deal with man's problem. This is not an ordinary God. This is not an ordinary Savior. God the just is angry with the wicked, but God the justifier stands ready to pardon those who repent of their sins and by faith place their trust and their only hope for heaven, Jesus Christ. Revelation 21, 1-8 says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. The former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. And to the one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. The promise. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, 
and all liars. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Augustine wrote, The Son of God became the Son of Man, that you who were sons of men might be made sons of God. We have seen extraordinary things today. I pray that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Let's pray. Father God, you are so good. And Lord, we thank you that you have not treated us like we deserve to be treated. Lord, the air that we breathe right now, you have given us and we will never give it back to you. And yet, those whom you've redeemed, those whom you've caused to be born again, those whom you've saved, Lord, you use us, foolish men, to preach such a glorious message. Lord, you could have chosen any way to reconcile people. You could have snapped your finger or not done anything at all and mankind could have been restored to you. Lord, but you sent your Son, your only begotten Son, to bear the weight of sin that was crushing us. Lord, let us look at your law. Let us look at your Word. Let us see, Father, the burden that those who try to live by good deeds carry every day. Lord, your word says that you resist the proud, but you give grace to the humble. And until the proud, Lord, are crushed under the weight of sin, until that law is such a heavy burden that they have no hope but to cry out for mercy, Lord, we pray that you would then save them. You do not save a proud people. You do not save good people. You save bad people. Lord, we're bad people. But for those of us in Christ... Lord, we have a great Savior. So I pray, Lord, that you would use these words, your words, Father, to stir the hearts of your people and to stir the hearts of the unredeemed. Draw your people to yourself, Father. Change us, Lord. Mold us, grow us, challenge us, Father. May we be reconciled to you, Father God. Lord, stir our hearts. Hear our prayers, Father God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.